Well, I'm very grateful to be stepping into this role and cherish your prayers in the days ahead. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. And as you turn there, uh, A.W. Tozer was a pastor and theologian who lived in the early to mid-20th century. And he has a famous line in which he essentially says, the most important thing about us is dot, dot, dot. So how, how would you finish that statement? So here's the actual quote from Tozer. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you first think about God? What comes into your mind? Well, maybe you don't think about God very much or at all. And I would say you should start doing that. That would be a good thing to start doing. But if you do, maybe you think of him as kind of a distant deity who kind of pats you on the back and cheers you on when you do good deeds. And therefore, he's relegated to basic irrelevance in your life and the stuff that really matters to you. Or maybe for you, when you think about God, it's quite the opposite, actually. I'm reading a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's by John Bunyan, who is the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And in this book, he writes about his struggles with sin and with faith. And his temptation was to view God as, a, as reluctant to accept him and as nearly impossible to please. Bunyan thought that he had sinned too greatly and too deeply for God to forgive him. And maybe your main conception of God is as stern or as reluctant or even you think about God as being angry. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? Well, what if this was what came into your mind when you thought about God? God is good. God is good and God is kind. Regardless of what's going on in my life, God is good. Irreversibly, unchangeably, comprehensively, eternally good. And God is kind. His heart is full of kindness toward his people. Therefore, he is committed to my good now and forever. Now, it's really simple to write that down on paper and to let those words come out of my mouth. But when the overwhelming pain and distress and anguish of life lands on us, that's when the real test of faith comes. Will we trust God's goodness even in our darkest hour? I want to encourage us from Ruth chapter 1 today that God's goodness should be one of the first things that comes into our minds when we think about God as Christians. So let's pray toward that end, and then we'll dig in to Ruth chapter 1. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears to see and to hear wonderful things from your word. Soften our hearts to receive your truth from Ruth chapter 1 this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the plan today is very simple. We're going to walk through uh, Ruth chapter 1 in five sections. I'm just going to make a few comments on each section as we go along, and then we'll be done. But here's what I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to say to us this morning through Ruth chapter 1. Behind and underneath all of the emptiness that we feel in our lives, there is a God who will never forsake his unbreakable commitment to do us good and show us kindness in Christ. Behind and underneath all of the emptiness that we feel in life, there is a God who will never, ever, ever forsake his commitment to do us good and show us kindness. And this is very good news, and it's what the book of Ruth is going to say to us this morning. So let me start by reading Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." The first seven words of the book of Ruth, if you look back there at Ruth chapter 1, the first seven words really set the context for the book, of, book as a whole. So all of the events of the book of Ruth happen against the backdrop of the book that comes before Ruth, which is the book of Judges. So what was going on when the Judges ruled? Well, there's a refrain in the book of Judges, and it comes actually in the last sentence of the book of Judges. So if you just flip one page back to the book of Judges, you'll see there that refrain where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges can be described with one word. Here's the word that describes the book of Judges. Chaos. Chaos, the chaos of sin, the chaos of selfishness, the chaos of rebellion against God, this kind of downward spiral, self-destruction. If you've ever read the book of Judges, think about the stories that are in that book. Some of them are too dark and twisted um, to even repeat verbally in some ways. Chaos, chaos, chaos. And we feel this kind of chaos in our society today. We are living in a judges-like time. Not much changes, does it? Humans are humans. And without the intervention of the Lord, we spiral downward, which is why we need the Lord and the church more now than ever. Now is not the time to withdraw now is the time to dig in. Now is the time to be present. Now is the time to move forward in our mission 
as Christians and as a church. We are living in a judges-like time, a chaotic time. But as we look at the book of Judges, it forces us to ask this question. Is there a future for the land of Israel and the people of Israel? Or to ask it another way, is there a future for the promises of God? You see, God made promises to his people that they would inherit a land forever. But is the nation of Israel going to blow it so badly that they actually spiral downward into oblivion? This is the question that we're forced to ask as we enter into the book of Ruth. Or will God decisively intervene? Well, the book of Ruth is the happy answer to that question. God does keep his promises. God does intervene in the midst of chaos. But as is often the case, this happy answer comes through a lot of sadness. So if you look at Ruth 1, 1 through 5, you'll notice that there's a lot of sadness in Naomi's life. And it sets up the context for the whole book, this whole book of the Bible. And as an aside, can I just encourage you to read this book of Ruth in the month of February? February is Ruth month at New Covenant. So four Sundays, four different preachers, four chapters of Ruth, and we're going to dig into this wonderful book of the Bible. And I would just invite you to read study the book of Ruth as we go along. It is a wonderful, powerful, beautiful book of the Bible. And I've just been reawakened to the beauty of this book of the Bible afresh as I've studied it these past several weeks. Here's what I want to get us to get out of this section in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. When Naomi left Israel and went to Moab, she was full. And she says that later on in chapter 1. She says, I went away full. But if you fast forward 10 years in Moab, in Naomi's life, she is left completely empty. She's left totally empty. She had a husband, she had two sons, she had food, she had a home for her family. Ten years later, all of that is gone. Her husband is dead, her two sons are dead, and with them, her future and inheritance are dead. She goes from fullness to emptiness. And maybe you feel a bit that way this morning. Well, I'm glad if you feel that way, if you feel like my life feels empty today, and I feel like the Lord has taken away from me today. I'm glad that you're here because I believe that God has a message from Ruth 1 for you. Maybe you expected something different from the Christian life. Maybe you expected that things wouldn't be so hard. But here you are, and, and perhaps your life isn't exactly what it would have been if you had written the script but you've entrusted your life to God. You've entrusted your life to Christ. And sometimes, if you're honest, it feels like he's actually working against you and not for you. When I was pastoring in Indiana several years back, there was an individual who was 
coming to the church who was new to Christianity. And he and I had a conversation, and he said something to me like this. He said, yeah, I committed my life to Christ, and soon afterward I found a girlfriend, and my job's gotten better, and life is just smoother and more successful generally. And as I hear that kind of thing, I think, but what happens when in a year or five years or 10 years down the road, things go in the opposite direction? What happens then? What happens when the things and people that are most precious and important to us are taken away. Well, let's keep reading to see how Naomi responds to this very situation, starting in verse 6 of Ruth 1. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So at first, here's how the story goes. Naomi is planning to return to Israel with her daughters-in-law, and they both want to go with her back to Israel. But then at some point on the journey, Naomi has a change of mind. And the, the story really slows down. The narrative really slows down at this point. And the picture is of these women stopping on their journey and coming to a standstill on the road. And there they discuss their options. It's, it's kind of like they have a little huddle up. What are we going to do here? And you see, Naomi loves these women who married her sons. And she knows that if they're going to have a future, if they're going to remarry and have children and have a land and have an inheritance. It's not going to be by following her, by following Naomi. She cannot give them these things anymore. And so the story is building to this climactic moment of decision. What are Ruth and Orpah going to do? And it's a fork in the road. It's literally a decision of which direction are these women going to take? Will they turn back to Moab or will they return with Naomi to Israel? And it's a painful moment of decision. Did you notice all of the tears that were shed? They're weeping. They love one another. These women love Naomi. They don't want to leave her. 
And so as Naomi kind of reasons things out in her mind, one of the options is the logical one. One of the options is the sensible one. To go with Naomi for these Moabite women almost certainly means loss. But to go back to Moab only, almost certainly means gain for these women. And so it's no surprise that Orpah says, yes, I love you, Naomi, but I'm going back to Moab where I can find a husband and have children and have a land and inheritance. It's no surprise. That's just a logical decision. It's like there's this clear plan laid out and Orpah says, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going down that path. But Ruth makes the choice of faith and of love. Ruth doesn't know what's going to happen to her following Naomi. She doesn't know what's in her future on this path, but she takes that step of faith in God. She takes that step of faith in the Lord, as we'll see, but it's also a choice of love. Ruth loves Naomi, and she's willing to experience personal loss in order to help and bless her mother-in-law. Ruth considers the interests of Naomi even above her own. And one of my prayers for this church, for New Covenant Bible Church, is that we would, our relationships would be so close and tethered to one another that we would be able to essentially say to one another, I would do anything for you. This is what Ruth is saying to Naomi. I would do anything for you even at great cost to myself, to bless and help and encourage you. I trust that that is the flavor of New Covenant Bible Church, that we would step into one another's pain and hardship and say, out of kindness for you, at cost to myself, I will enter into this to help and bless. But there's more to Ruth's decision. Let's look at it in verses 15 through 18. Ruth 1, 15 through 18. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi's still trying. Ruth, go back. Go back to Moab. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Naomi continues to try to convince Ruth, go back to your people and to your gods, to Moab. But Ruth was determined. Ruth has what we might call holy stubbornness. My little Annie, if you know her, she's third born, sweet as can be, and stubborn as can be. And we recently found out that in school she was told to do something. Normally she's obedient but she saw that what she was being asked to do wasn't the best thing in her mind. So she said, no. <laughs> Quietly, stubbornly, no. And the teacher, of course, said, well, yes, you will, Annie. And she budged. But this stubbornness and holy stubbornness, this, this gritty resolve 
to refuse the pleasures of sin and to follow Christ no matter the cost. A gritty resolve to make the kind decision for another even when the self-gratifying route looks so appealing. Look at it in verse 18. It says, Ruth was determined to go with her. We see this, this resolved commitment in Ruth in the statement that she makes to Naomi, where she says, Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. For Ruth, this wasn't just about making a decision of loyalty to Naomi. On a more fundamental and deep level, this was about Naomi taking a step to be loyal to God, to enter into relationship with God. This is Ruth saying, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing my Lord. And we know that God in his sovereign grace in these moments with Ruth, you just imagine it, the scene, here's Ruth clinging to Naomi. And what God is doing in these moments is he's softening Ruth's heart to not only be loyal to Naomi, but to love and cherish and follow her God now. And you may be in here this morning and this is your moment. This is the day of salvation for you. Don't say, I'll wait till a future season of life. I'll wait till I'm older. I'll wait till I'm in kind of a different moment in my life. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Follow in the footsteps of Ruth with all your heart and trust all that you are to God. I wonder if you are at this moment of decision in your life this morning. And, and, and the Lord is calling you to take that step of faith in him, to trust him, to follow him, to entrust your life to him. Maybe that feels risky. Like, what is it going to look like for me to become a Christian? Maybe it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty about what being a follower of Jesus will look like. But God is calling you even today. And the Lord Jesus right now is calling you to follow him, to trust in him like Ruth did. And maybe this is your first moment of taking that step and saying to the Lord, I give my life to you. Is this your moment today? I pray that it is like it was for Ruth those many years ago. So we've zeroed in on Ruth a bit. Let's find out how Naomi is doing as we read uh, verses 19 through 21. Ruth 1, 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, keep your eyes on these verses and notice that Naomi says four times in different ways that God has worked against her. Look at verse 20. 
the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So what was the first thing that came into Naomi's mind when she thought about God? Here's how she might respond at this point in her life. God is someone who works against me. God is someone who broke me. God is someone who took away everything dear to me. God is someone who emptied me. And just to be clear, Naomi's theology is solid. She's not wrong. She's not speaking untrue things here in 19 through 21. God is the one who sends hardship into our lives. To say anything otherwise is to remove him from control and sovereignty over all of the details of our lives. We don't want that. God brought these hard things upon Naomi. So let's think about this together. I did some boxing in high school and early college, and there are two great boxing movies. You know the one already. It's Rocky. And my favorite is Rocky IV. And what happens in Rocky IV is that Rocky Balboa is set to fight this large Russian boxer, Ivan Drago, who is about a head taller than Rocky. And Rocky in this bout is getting pummeled and destroyed. And everyone is worried that Rocky's going to lose, right? No, we know Rocky's going to win. Um, so Rocky gets a second or third or fourth wind, and somehow through sheer force of iron will, he defeats his opponent. He falls to his knees with his arms in the air, and of course he cries out for Adrian. But there's another movie that goes much differently, and I'm not going to say the name of the movie because I'm about to spoil it, but the main character in this movie wrestles all throughout his life, not just physically, but emotionally and relationally. His relationship with his dad and his brother are a wreck. And at the end of the movie, the two brothers are set to fight one another, and the main character starts losing the fight. And as he's losing, you can tell that his hard heart is starting to crack open. And his brother gets him to a point where he's broken his arm and he's choking him out and he's behind him and he's, he's whispering into his ear, just tap and I love you. And he says it over and over again, just tap. I love you. Just tap. I love you. Just tap. I love you. And in the closing scene, he's limping out of the auditorium with his brother's arm around him broken and healed. Now, I ask you, which movie better represents the Christian life? In Rocky, it's work hard and be disciplined and make it to the top and win. And some people think of Christianity like this. Following Jesus is an upward path to victory. If you just follow him closely enough and are faithful enough, he'll bless you with health and wealth and success and happiness. But the Christian life, as the Bible explains it, is actually more like the other movie. The Christian life is not an upward climb 
to success, but a pattern of death and resurrection. Who said these words? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know who said those words? Jesus of Nazareth. God's wonderful plan for your life is to break you, (laughs) welcome the church, (laughs) and submit you through suffering, loss, and emptiness, to wound you so that you limp and then cry out for help and renewal. He's saying, stop your wrestling, tap out, and let yourself be loved and cared for by me. Can't you just imagine Naomi after her husband is dead and her two sons are dead and her future is dead, just lying on the ground somewhere in utter anguish and crying out, why, Lord? You've been there. Why, Lord? I'm totally empty. Why, Lord? John Newton, the hymn writer, helps us with an answer to that question. I have it up, I'll have it up on the screen, and I'm going to read this, one of my favorite hymns, slowly, because this is a lesson that the Bible teaches us that I believe we need to sink into our souls deeply. Here's what John Newton says. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And as Christians, we pray those kind of prayers all the time. Lord, help me grow. Help me love you more. Help me have more faith. Newton goes on. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yet more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He's making it worse. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. It's good, isn't it? So here's a vital truth that we, we simply must believe. God takes away, yes, but more ultimately, he gives. God is the God who gives abundantly and graciously. So William Cowper wrote, said another hymn, says this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind 
a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And so the book of Ruth shouts to us, the God who takes away is not all there is to God. God, at his most fundamental core, is good. He is, his heart is full of kindness. So here's a central question of Christianity. Can you see through the darkness and mysterious providence of God in your life? What trials are you facing today? What deep anguish are you going through? What pain is there in your life? And what the Lord is calling you to this morning is to see through that to the reality that God is good. And God is infinitely kind. He's full of kindness. And here's the most solid proof of God's total kindness. God himself entered into this broken world in Jesus Christ. And Jesus experienced total fullness in heaven. And he gave up that fullness to embrace the absolute emptiness of the cross. Jesus went from fullness and joy and having everything to emptiness and loss and pain as he died there on that cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and healed and restored and enter into that right relationship with God where we can show kindness to one another. And the beautiful truth is that when Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead, he not only guaranteed a right and peaceful relationship that we could have with God, but he also guaranteed a future for us, a bright, hopeful future that we have when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. And Naomi, I can assure you, would have been so blessed and strengthened and encouraged by this hope in Jesus. But we get the benefit of knowing the reality of Jesus today and having this hope in front of us so that as we travel through what often feels like the wilderness and hardship of this life, we can cling to the hope that we have in Christ. Christian, you have a bright future and you have a good God who loves you, even in the midst of your hardest and deepest pain and anguish. And there's a little hint of hope right at the end of Ruth chapter 1, the last verse of Ruth 1, and we'll end with this. Verse 22 says this, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now listen. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That sentence there in Ruth 1.22 is like the Holy Spirit whispering to us, something good is coming for Naomi and for Ruth. The beginning of barley harvest, huh? Something is coming that's good, that's hopeful. And it teaches us that the Lord is going to so weave and intertwine the lives of his people so that even through the hardship that Naomi has faced, he is orchestrating things for her good and 
for his glory, and he's doing the same thing in our lives. More to come on that next week. For now, let's pray.